Hey everybody, this is Jeannie Faulkner, and you're listening to Common Sense Pregnancy, Parenting, and Power, the podcast where we talk about all the issues that go into making or breaking safe pregnancy, birth, and parenthood. So we celebrated International Women's Day this week, and March is also the month when we honor women's history. And to coin the old phrase, we've come a long way, babies, but damn, we still have so far to go, especially when it comes to women's health and reproductive rights. And if you think I'm going to go on a feminist rant right now, you're probably right. All you have to do is look at the front page of the paper, and you'll see that women's rights to access whatever type of reproductive health care we need and deem most appropriate for our lives and health are still being challenged, blocked, and dragged back in time. I remember reading last year a report that really impressed me. Um, I think it was done by the Guttmacher Institute, and they said that by halfway through 2014, state legislators had already introduced a whopping 468 bills with restrictions to limit, control, or regulate women's reproductive rights. And in the same time period, guess how many were introduced to regulate men's reproductive rights? None. Zero. They never are. Women have always had to fight for their right to high-quality, respectful, compassionate, autonomous, and safe reproductive health care whether that's for appropriate prenatal and maternal health care or access to contraception or safe legal abortion or appropriate screening and preventative health care. We see examples of women's disenfranchisement or disempowerment all over the place. Like in prenatal care, when a doctor tells his patient that he won't let her go past her due date. I've heard doctors say that a million times, and I've heard just as many patients Repeat it as if, you know, they're not even questioning it. Oh, my doctor won't let me go past my due date, so I have to have a C-section. My doctor won't let me do this or that. Seriously? Won't let you? Who do you think that doctor is? You're not a child. Okay, okay, I'm all done with the rant. For now, anyway. I want to read a little bit from the book today, from Chapter 5 of Common Sense Pregnancy, about prenatal education and birth plans. And I want to talk about this because women today can almost take it for granted that they'll have access to more health information than any generation of women ever had. Um, And I'm really grateful for that. I want to read the part that's getting a prenatal education before and beyond what the hospital teaches. Prior to the 1950s and still today in many parts of the world, the only education a woman received about her impending labor and birth was what her mother, sisters, doctor, midwife, or friends told her. Most women simply did what came naturally without having the benefit of a specialized curriculum. There weren't any six-week sessions of evening lessons or weekend intensives. There weren't dozens of books, magazines, and websites devoted to all things childbirth-related. For most women, childbirth education consisted of watching your siblings being born or the cow deliver her calf. When formal childbirth education programs began, They were considered as essential as prenatal care, but they were also focused primarily on having a natural, family-centered birth. They were the answer to the over-medicalized, isolated birth experiences common in hospitals prior to the 1970s natural childbirth movement. For decades thereafter, women took classes with their labor coaches to learn how to relax, breathe, change positions, and do all they could to facilitate a birth sans medication or surgery. These classes in the natural childbirth movement were damn successful, too. 
From the early 1970s through the 1980s, women and their partners gained a measure of control over their births. Many of the unpleasant and potentially humiliating and even dangerous practices, like shaving, enemas, and episiotomies, were greatly reduced. Women were no longer knocked out, strapped down, and delivered by forceps with their husbands off in the waiting room or a bar. We gained a lot of traction in those years, as doctors and hospitals acquiesced to what women wanted. The American birth culture has changed a lot since then, and women today have different issues to deal with. Having a baby nowadays is loaded with medical legal standards, technology, interventions, tests, monitoring, anesthesia, decisions, plans, goals, and a bevy of birthing philosophies. That's why women need a good prenatal education, to learn how to navigate the medical system and negotiate for the birth they want and the one that's safest for them. When women don't have a clue how the birth industry operates, pun intended, they end up with more interventions than they need or are safe. Thus, we have the highest C-section and NICU admission rates in history. Okay, I'm going to leave it there. I want you guys to grab the book um, and read the rest of that for yourself. And when you do read that chapter, I hope that you're mindful and as grateful as I am of how many women went before us and paved the way for the fire hose of information you have available to you as a woman in the 21st century. Today, my guest has been among the most significant contributors to feminism and women's health in the last 50 years. I'm really excited to talk to Judy Norsigian, one of the co-founders and co-authors of Our Bodies, Ourselves. Let's get Judy on the line. Hi, Judy. Hi there. How are you, Jeannie? I'm really well. I'm really well. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. And I want to start out by reading a bit of your bio, um, and then I want you to fill in the blanks for us. Does that work? Sure. Okay. Judy Norsigian is one of the co-founders of Our Bodies, Ourselves, which is a nonprofit public interest organization based in Cambridge, Massachusetts, that develops and promotes evidence-based information on girls' and women's reproductive health and sexuality. It also addresses the um, social, economic, and political conditions that affect health care access and quality of care. The um, landmark publication, Our Bodies, Ourselves, was first published in 1971 and has sold millions of copies and received numerous honors. Library Journal named the most recent edition, published in 2011, one of the best consumer health books of the year, and I couldn't agree more. Did I get it right? Yes, and Time Magazine gave an award, and the uh, Library of Congress said it was one of 88 books that shaped America in a big uh, exhibition in 2012. So there are many other recognitions of the book and its impact as well. Well, Judy, I am really, really honored to have you on the podcast today, and I've been a big fan of Our Bodies, Ourselves since I was a very young girl, and in fact, I give... I give you a measure of credit for my interest in following health care, especially women's health care. And, um, you know, just as way as, as a little background, I grew up as the youngest of eight Catholic parents. And my mom actually did a pretty good job with the anatomy and physiology part of my own and my you know, brothers and sisters' reproductive education. Um, mm-hmm. And she gave the more emotional or, as she'd put it, moral parts of my reproductive education a real solid Catholic spin. But 
I had seven older siblings, as much as 20 and 22 years older than me, and they had their own homes and their own lifestyles and their own books on the table. And Our Bodies, Ourselves was one of those books. And um, it actually, it came on the scene when I was about 11 or 12, you know, right around the time I started having my period and going through puberty and adolescence. And the information I absorbed from that book was so essential to me. I really, I can't tell you how much it meant to my own perspective on health and health care. Well, I can appreciate that. And although when I have friends who have kids, you know, 5 to 7, 7 to 9, or 9 to 11 years old, um, sometimes I recommend the Roe Harris books, particularly It's Perfectly Normal, which is geared to 9 to 11 years old. But after that, if someone is pretty literate, even though Our Bodies Ourselves is written at the 10th grade reading level, many 12, 13, 14-year-olds have dug into the book and found it immensely useful. I met a man who said it was the reason he went into OBGYN. Oh, I've read so many stories from young men who learned about menstrual cramps and told their girlfriends what to do. It just It's lovely to see that not only women but men read the book and that they use it as a guide, a resource, uh, in a practical way, but also, as you pointed out earlier, it points to some of the social, political, and economic solutions that we need to address and need to put into place so that every woman and girl can fulfill her complete potential. And I don't just mean health-wise, but it certainly um, is a big focus of the book. We think about women's health and sexuality across the lifespan as our focus right now. And I say our because as a founder, I've joined other founders in being very supportive of the work of the organization. But as of a little more than a year ago, I stepped down as the organization's executive director, partly to focus more on climate change, which is a growing passion of mine. But I have in the interim worked very hard as a volunteer with the staff and the board to ensure that the organization has a future. Because like many nonprofits, our bodies ourselves have struggled quite a bit to make ends meet over the last few years. So now the book is like 45 years old? Is that correct? Yes, it is. Yes, and it is. The, it, the very first newsprint edition actually came out in December of 1970. It was called Women in Their Bodies. But as you pointed out, the first newsprint, Our Bodies Ourselves, with that title, came out in 1971. So we are headed for the 45th anniversary um, event. Some, we'll do something this fall. And we also are very happy to see the way the book has traverse the globe and engage women's groups in many different countries produce their own translation adaptations and sometimes different formats, not just a book, could be booklets, could be online, but they've shaped the information to meet their own needs and that's been exciting for us to watch as well. It really was the first book of its kind, you know, a woman's health book written for and directed to women. You know, it wasn't a medical textbook, it though it was written by medical experts, it, it wasn't something for doctors to learn and then share with their patients, which, you know, That's distills right. it. It. It, was, it was by and for women um, and by lay women. Yes, we turn to medical textbooks and we turn to nurses and physicians and nurse practitioners who were quite helpful in the early stages of pulling the book together. But we didn't originally come to this work thinking we'd do a book. It was really collecting information for our own needs and local workshops grew out of it. And, and of course, the term papers that then became the newsprint booklet morphed into the 
book that Simon & Schuster wanted to publish, which didn't come out till 1973, it all happened organically and out of the needs of us as women and other women. And in those days, you have to remember, there was very little information. Most of it was very medicalized in its approach. Uh, it was very, if there was any material, it was condescending and paternalistic. Most uh, physicians were men. In fact, 98% of all OBGYNs were male. So we didn't get the kind of respectful treatment that we would have wanted at that point. And of course, even over the years, there have been struggles. But the sexism and the condescension and paternalism that was widespread in medical care that women sought has certainly diminished over the years. And women do feel more entitled to ask questions, to get answers, and to go elsewhere if the answers don't seem forthcoming. You know, I'm I, I want to remind young women who are listening to this podcast what it was like back in those early days. And I'm reminded of something that I just heard yesterday um, on, a, on, a, on another podcast that single women didn't even have the legal and medical right to access contraception until like 1973. Isn't that correct? Well, it, there's some important court cases in the 60s. Um, there are a number of different court cases, and we don't have to get into them right now, but mm -hmm. contraception was not accessible unless you were married in most states. And right. um, we've had the Griswold case in Connecticut, and um, certainly Bill Baird, who was a very famous advocate for access to contraception, gave a speech at, in Boston University in and, and what is um, the hall that we use for our 40th anniversary mm -hmm. symposium back in October 2000. 2011. And I, you know, he was going to jail for what he was talking about, gaining access to contraception for everyone, including young unmarried women. Mm -hmm. uh, it was heretical. Of course, I remember my days as an undergraduate, not even knowing when I went to this lovely older OBGYN in Harvard Square who gave me a diaphragm that what he was doing wasn't even legal then. Yeah, <laughs> that was a he, huge risk. He, he felt that it was really wrong for um, young women who were going to be sexually active not to have access to the contraceptives that were available. The, the birth control pill was just coming on the market then, and... You know, I, I didn't realize that the high-dose estrogen pill was actually somewhat dangerous. And in those days, we didn't know very much about high-dose estrogen pills. So I was prescribed one, actually, that I took only for a short period because I didn't like how I was feeling on it. And mm -hmm. I was one of those women whose body didn't really take well to the pill, particularly the high-dose estrogen pill. But then it was much later, we had the research that showed us that if we're going to use the birth control pill, it needs to be a must, much, much lower dose estrogen. It would be um, effective nonetheless. You guys paid, paved the way for you know, the reproductive care that women receive today. It's a legacy. And it's, it's a very difficult path to travel right now because particularly with this sort of new wave of conservative right-wing advocacy trying to not only take away abortion rights but also take away access to contraception, we at the same time want a safe and effective contraceptive. So sometimes we're critical of contraceptives that come down the pike. If you read some of our recent blogs, we have a strongly worded blog that is pointing to the harms of Assure. This is a, a, what we call permanent contraception. Mm -hmm. It's not um, some might have thought of it as a non-surgical sterilization alternative, but if you think of sterilization as truly effective, and we used to 
think of this, you know, certainly tubal ligation as being pretty much permanent and, and completely effective. It actually wasn't um, as completely effective as we would have wanted. Mm-hmm. And so now we think of, um, you know, long-term st- uh, birth control and don't give the promise of, you know, 100% efficacy no matter what we're doing. But at this point in time, it is an alternative to surgical contraception, but um, a surgical long-term contraception, but it is associated with some pretty severe harm. So women need to be uh, uh, aware of what they are and make uh, a decision based upon what best suits their needs. So we are joining those voices who were saying be much more careful about Assure, even though the FDA is not going to take it off the market. Um, And we also want to remind women that although the IUD is a very good method for many women, young and old, it still is associated with some degree of embedding, perforation, and infection for women who use the IUD. So you need to learn what those rates are and think about whether or not they're risks you want to take. Uh, There are risks and benefits to every method we might choose. And Although the diaphragm plus use of the condom is a very effective method of birth control and also protects against some sexually transmissible infections, if you're not going to use the diaphragm and if you're not going to use the condom and you're basically going to be someone who's not able to use a method reliably, repeatedly, then maybe that method isn't right for you. So you have to know who you are. One of the things I really wanted to talk to you about today is sort of on the polar the polar opposite of the range of contraceptive and reproductive health care. I kind of wanted to talk about um, the um, issues around fertility treatments and specialists. And um, that's something I really am interested in that I know that you're really passionate about, too. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. your concern is you've got some pretty deep concerns, particularly for women who provide services in contractual third party reproduction or surrogates, right? Yes, we actually have a a dual set of concerns, a set of concerns for the young women who are being asked to provide eggs for in vitro fertilization that other women will um, engage in. They provide the eggs, they fertilize, and then um, a gestational mother, often not the intentional parent, will then uh, get that embryo uh, take a pregnancy to term and then give the baby over to what we call commissioning parents or intended parents. Uh, this is a, a very common activity right now where we've got young women providing eggs, we've got other women providing gestational services. People call them surrogates, but we don't like to use that term because mm. they're actually not a surrogate. They are actually the mother who gives birth. Mm. Um, they are a surrogate in the sense they don't intend to raise that child, and the intended parents will come along and raise the child once the child is born. Mm, okay. um, that and that those are important distinctions for us. And then there are, of course, the risks to the so-called surrogate or gestational mothers. Increasingly, busy women in other countries and in poor countries where both their right to um, secure the money they are promised is limited, and there are many stories where women were told they would get a certain amount of money and they get much less, Mm -hmm. and they do not have legal recourse like what we might have in the United States. Uh, And there are also many situations in which women who are gestational mothers are told you must agree to have a cesarean section um, when the baby comes to term. This isn't good for the baby nor for the mother, uh, and 
Um, so and why, if I were are... a very educated uh, commissioning parent, I wouldn't want it to be the case for any offspring that I was going to raise. So mm-hmm. it's a very interesting field right now where best practices are not necessarily being followed. Um, the convenience of, say, a hospital or the caregivers, or in some cases the commissioning parents who have to travel to another country, those convenience factors are being put ahead of the health of the baby or the gestational mother. And we have raised those concerns with our Indian colleagues, uh, Sama Resource Group for Women in Health based in New Delhi, India, and they have done some amazing work there trying to raise consciousness about the risks and benefits and to at least keep out of any sort of national law a requirement that gestational mothers would have to agree to undergo a cesarean section when the baby comes to term. So for women who are considering third-party reproductive services, um, in, in any of, you know, whether they're the egg donor or they're the gestating parent or the um, adopting parent, what do you want them to know? What should they know? before they enter into that relationship? Well, for the younger women who are thinking about providing eggs, and they're partly motivated by altruism, but if you look at the surveys sociologists have conducted, an absolute given and essential component of this is the money. And if there weren't the money, there wouldn't be enough motivation simply from altruism alone to go ahead and undergo um, what is a pretty stressful um, uh, experience. You have to initially have your ovarian function shut down with a set of drugs and then subsequently hyperstimulated to produce multiple eggs, multiple follicles. And uh, we do know some of the risks uh, that are not always shared with young women. The most severe risk that comes with the hyperstimulation part of this procedure is the risk of ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome, or OHSS. We know of at least a few documented deaths from OHSS, and this is largely because the women, when they present with symptoms of a problem, something we call the ascites, where the abdomen fills with fluid, and you need to have emergency attention where the abdomen, abdominal fluid is siphoned out. If you don't get that kind of attention right away, um, death is one of the possible risks. Well, that's scary, scary information. It is scary, and and I'm not so sure that the few documented deaths we know of were preventable. If the women had been treated right away and had had the ascites addressed, they may not have died. There are other... Are those cases rare? Are they rare? They are rare. They are rare. And um, OHSS is not as rare as one would like to think. Some studies show as many as 3 to 5% of the women having significant, moderate to severe OHSS. Some show even more. And that's not such small numbers. What we're concerned about is that, as we hear anecdotally, many young women who did not get attention when they needed it were running completely in the other direction from the caregivers, not trusting them. So we don't have good data about what happened to them. There is a group called We Are Egg Donors, which is trying to track more of these stories. They're doing in-depth interviews with women. We also have one uh, very well-run registry in the United States. It's voluntary, but at least it's a start, called the Infertility Family Research Registry. Um, ifrrregistry.org. It's based at Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center. And what we're trying to do is get more of the fertility centers to promote awareness of this registry so that anybody involved in ART procedures, that means assisted reproductive technology procedures, can choose to participate. Go to the website. You can sign up whether you're uh, a sperm donor, an egg donor, whether you're doing IVF for yourself. Um, They have the opportunity for you to be followed longitudinally so your health 
will be tracked and that you will provide um, information for researchers to use in the future. What we really love is a perspective um, trial that follows women closely. And this is including women who do IVF for themselves. Sometimes women undergo these procedures to produce their own eggs. Right. Um, that would then possibly be used by themselves or by a gestational mother. And we want everybody's health and well-being to be followed um, longitudinally. We don't have that yet. And one of the disappointing facts is that the vast majority of the large fertility centers have refused to participate in the IFRR, which says something to me about their commitment to good research. Why, um, why, are, they, not for why are they refusing? It's not for lack of being told. We've, sent, we've seen letters from the IFRR go to several hundred of these clinics. There have been follow-up phone calls, and many of these clinics simply haven't participated. So our next step at Our Bodies Ourselves is to reach out to the egg donors or would-be egg donors to say, don't agree to provide eggs unless. The facilities you're working with offer the brochure, the placket in the center so that women and men will know about the availability of this um, registry and their ability to participate in it. It's simply, it's their decision. But if they're not informed about the uh, existence of the registry, they can't even choose to participate. So we're hoping that more young women will vote with their feet and they'll say, listen, I'm going to provide my eggs only if you're participating to this important research, this important registry, which could enable researchers to get more information in the future. Well, as always, the more you know, the better your health will be. Um, and let me just say one yeah. more thing, Jeannie, and that yeah. is that on the other side, we are wanting uh, the commissioning parents to be better informed because they, too, were not given good information. So we're creating a website resource called Surrogacy360. It will probably be surrogacy360.org and then online and available as of late spring, maybe May or June. Mm -hmm. And we're encouraging everyone to let people know about this resource. It will have the best available information. It will have stories of those who have engaged in ART procedures. Um, and it will lead um, any user to good resources and websites. Okay, great. Well, Judy, let's shift gears once again. Let's talk about the um, Certified Professional Midwifery Bill. I believe that's House Bill 1998 or Senate Bill 1156. Am I right on that? Yes, but these are in Massachusetts. It's right. not in the, yes, in right. the state of Massachusetts. Yes. Right. But it's still kind and of significant across the nation. And um, so currently in Massachusetts, only certified nurse midwives are um, regulated and certified, correct? There's no state oversight for CPMs, certified professional midwives? That's right. There's regulation and oversight of certified nurse midwives, yes, okay. so and let's, not CPMs. Let's, let's just, um, I want to clarify really quickly for our listeners, the difference between a certified nurse midwife and a certified professional midwife is pretty simple in that certified nurse midwives are pretty much the accepted midwifery experts for hospital births as well as out-of-hospital births, but most of them work in hospital. And certified professional midwives are the experts in out-of-hospital experiences, like at um, a home birth or a birth center birth, correct? Uh, that's correct, although there are very few states in which CPMs are practicing in birth centers right now. That may expand. Um, I do think they practice in Texas, and of course there are a lot of birth centers in Texas. But you're right, the CPMs are 
very much um, the experts in out-of-hospital or, more importantly, home birth, and that's where they get their training. Um, they do pass an exam. Uh, they are regulated, um, and they are licensed, regulated in more than half the states in the country. This is the trend. Uh, in Massachusetts, we've been struggling for almost 10 years to get um, what we call a very important consumer bill passed because CPM, the CPM bill will establish a floor for um, the kind of uh, training that your home birth midwife will have, and you'll know she has it because by virtue of her CPM um, designation, uh, you, you have to attend so many births, you have to pass an exam, you have to demonstrate competency. Um, it will help consumers who simply see somebody who says, I'm a home birth midwife and I'm well-trained, um, they'll help them know how well-trained she is because she may not be that well-trained um, if she's not a CPM. She might be, but you don't know that by simply looking at the fact she's advertising. Yeah. So the passage of this bill would somewhat legitimize the value of out-of-hospital births, like in birth centers, or mostly at home. Um, and I think that that's something that is becoming a really current part of the national conversation. Well, yes. In fact, we have to understand that no matter where we choose to give birth, we are taking risks. Uh, some things happen in the course of birth um, that are very unfortunate. And whether you're in the hospital or at home, certain kinds of outcomes um, mean the demise of the baby. It's because the baby couldn't live whether the baby was born in the hospital or at home. Yeah. Um, those are very sad moments, but being in the hospital doesn't save you from them. There are a few very, very small numbers of cases where being in the hospital to begin with um, and, and where you would have what we'd call a five-minute emergency, you know, you have to do something within five minutes in a hospital setting, right. where, it would, where it would make the difference, too, between life and death. These are extremely rare cases. The vast majority of cases where a problem starts to occur in the home setting with what may have looked like a normal birth allows you plenty of time for a transfer. And in settings where we have a seamless transfer situation where um, hospitals uh, talk to midwives, they are in communication at the home during transport, and the transport and the transition is smoothly done because we have these protocols in place in the hospital to receive home birth mothers and families. You don't see what you have traditionally heard of uh, some obstetricians referring to as home birth wrecks. In mm -hmm. fact, there's an obstetrician in Portland, in the Portland area, who heads up five hospitals that provide such transfer agreements and arrangements. Um, and years ago, they did see what we call train wrecks. And in the five years since they've had this system of being welcoming to home birth parents, there's not been one so-called train wreck. The transfers have been good. The outcomes have been good. No babies have been lost. And it's all about recognizing the, the rights and the values of the home birth families and their choice to avoid hospital-based infection, the very high rate of unnecessary intervention, the likelihood of a cesarean being much greater in the hospital than at home, even if you have a normal pregnancy. Those families that know those statistics can and rightfully should be able to choose a home birth and have respectful treatment when and if they need to transfer to a hospital. We will see much better outcomes across the board. And that's what, what is happening gradually in the states that are recognizing the value of certified professional midwives and having families who choose home birth have access to 
seamless transfer, what we call an integrated system, and outcomes improving across the board. Yes, there are many obstetricians who believe a home birth is dangerous. It's not based in good science. They're not dangerous. In fact, the latest studies show the risks to both settings, uh, to some terrible outcome, of some terrible outcome, they're really quite minimal. What we need to do is have qualified caregivers arranging for transfers when they're needed and having the optimal care regardless of the setting that the family's choosing. And when we do that, we see that we've got really good outcomes. And Canada has, of course, very good studies showing this. When you have an integrated system, you have good outcomes across the board, whether people start in the hospital, they start in the home, or they start in a birth center. And I think for many couples who really want to have um, the, the comfort of a birth center, but some technology nearby and very good transfer agreements in place, a birth center is a great option, and we don't have enough birth centers across the country. And again, this is because of opposition more than because it's not feasible or even financially possible to do so. Yeah, a lot of change is coming. Yeah, and I'm, I appreciate that you gave a shout-out to an Oregon OB. Um, that's where, where my studio is here, is in Portland, Oregon, and I think I know exactly which doctor and which hospital you're talking about. I'm proud of what... Yes, well, it's the Legacy, I'll tell yeah, you, it's the Legacy, Legacy Hospital System. Yeah. Yep, and I heard him speak at a conference when I, about three years ago in Seattle. He was absolutely eloquent, and mm-hmm. some of what he said is now online at the Homebird Summit website, if anyone wants to go and hear him directly. I, there are others who weighed in as well, ethicists, OBGYNs, um, Paul Bircher, who's in Albany Medical Center. People were very eloquent about the importance of improving the system and respecting parents' choices rather than fighting them and trying to make the system worse for everyone. And I'm sorry to see the organized obstetrical establishment in Massachusetts so opposed to the certified professional midwifery bill as well as the Mass Medical Society is. But there is going to be a time when they will have to agree that the safest approach for everybody is to have an integrated system and to respect the wishes of parents who want to seek out home birth or birth center choices. Yeah. Was that Dr. Duncan Nielsen? Yes, it was Duncan Nielsen. I love yes. him. I love him. <laughs> yes, yeah. He's a wonderful man. Well, he into is. his 60s, and yep. he's been around a long time. But, you know, one of the things he said, which I love, is that, you know, um, home birth is like the rain out there. You may not like it when it rains out, but it's going to rain, and yeah. it's going to rain whether you like it or not. The thing to do is to be prepared, have a raincoat, have an umbrella, deal with it as best you can. Yeah. He's trying to reach out to his peers to make them understand that home birth isn't going to go away, right. and that, uh, that their obligation and his obligation is to make it as safe as possible by creating an integrated system, as other countries have done with stellar outcomes. Yeah, yeah. Well, we are getting, we've been on the on the line here for a good long time, but I, I wanted to ask you just a couple more questions. Most importantly, what else do you want our listeners to know? Well, um, I think it's really important to understand that the cesarean section rates in one's hospital are an uh, important indicator of what's going to come um, If you happen to use that hospital, some hospitals have much higher rates than others, so take a look at that. Mm -hmm. That's really important to do so. Mm -hmm. And the other thing that you should know about is that there's much you can do to lower your risks of uh, uh, 
pre- of a cesarean section by choosing a caregiver with a low cesarean section rate. Mm-hmm. And they do exist in hospitals. You just have to know who they are. Choosing a birth center, if you've got one in your area, is an excellent alternative if you somewhat nervous about choosing a home birth, you don't feel that comfortable, but if there's a birth center around, do look into that. The other thing is that hospitals are bastions of infection, and Mm -hmm. you don't know when, say, an outbreak of one of these antibiotic-resistant infections is going to occur, and and you do not control that. You're not to control when you give birth and whether there's an outbreak of an unfortunate um, uh, you know, methicillin-resistant staphylococcus aureus or something like that. We call that MRSA infections. And, and that's another reason to consider where the best place for your baby to be born is. Uh, in your own home setting, those are familiar bacteria. You're not likely to develop an infection, what we call a nosocomial infection, which is hospital-induced. These are often off the radar screen, not talked about, but many women experience these kinds of hospital-based infections, and so do their babies, and they're not trivial. So it's something to be brought into the equation when you think about where you want to give birth. Our Bodies Ourselves is trying to embark upon a very important project with the American College of Nurse Midwives to reduce both primary cesarean rates and maybe even more importantly, repeat cesarean section rates, because once you've had a cesarean, each subsequent birth, if it's done by cesarean, increases the risk of some very serious consequences, um, like placenta accreta, which is associated with a small but measurable risk of death. You want to avoid subsequent cesareans um, because you've had scar tissue um, that comes from the first cesarean, and these can impair your ability to give birth without a serious complication subsequently. So if anyone is interested in uh, preventing cesareans, you know, try to get into an area where you have VBAC options, vaginal births after cesareans. Do not live in a community, if you can help it, where there are no hospitals offering VBAC as an option. And unfortunately, that is the growing case right now across the country, despite the evidence that trial of labor is the best way to proceed for women who had a previous cesarean, the irony is that the option of VBAC is now diminished in many, many communities. Right, right. Well, Judy, now I'd like to ask the final, most personal question, and that is this. Where are you in your life as a mom? Well, very interesting. Um, I had... um, two stepchildren, and then I gave birth to a a, a daughter who's 33, and um, I gave birth at home. It was a wonderful home birth. I am now very lucky that my goddaughter and her husband, and then my daughter and her husband, they live on the third floor, they're all around us, and my goddaughter has a 19-month-old baby, a boy, he's a toddler, Mm. who is a joy in my life. Mm. So I get to see a baby every day, um, fat Yes, and and I, when I've gone to meetings, I've always been the one who hogs babies because Mm -hmm. I love babies, and I never have enough of babies around Mm -hmm. me. And the older I get, the less that happens, except in the sort of grandchildren world. Mm -hmm. And I I have to say that one of the reasons I'm an activist on these issues, and I I am so supportive of midwifery, and I'm so supportive of, you know, all the best practices that we don't see implemented in the United States around maternity care. It's not just to reduce maternal and infant mortality, though those are good reasons, and to improve outcomes overall, reduce morbidity. It's because the joy that one can experience when you have 
a birth with minimal interventions, with all the support and love and presence of the family members and people you want there, there's nothing, nothing that's like that in your lifetime. So I want to be an agent of change that will bring more of that back into women's lives. They've been robbed of that experience. Many more women in my generation had access to those experiences than women do now. I want to see an end to the kind of pejorative language around women who breastfeed. And yes, some women are, and men too, might be a little bit, um, shall we say, uh, uh, doctrinaire about breastfeeding and judgmental of women who choose not to breastfeed. But for the most part, our problem is lack of support for the women who would like to breastfeed. We live in largely a hostile climate towards breastfeeding. And I think that is such a shame when all of the data over the last decades points to the benefits for both mother and baby of increasing our breastfeeding rates. We have so few women breastfeeding in comparison to other industrialized countries. It's a shame because we're a rich country. We should be able to provide the support to working moms. What that involves, you know, a private place to plump your breasts, and you know, the yeah. support to breastfeed in public. You know, what happened at the Patriots game a few years back was horrible for the mother who had to withstand that, you know, a criticism. But it was really good in that, the, you know, Bob Kraft himself came out and said, we're going to support women who nurse babies at yeah. our Patriots game. I did and a, understanding that this is good. I did a, an, a podcast episode um, a couple months back with uh, Jessica Shortall, who wrote the book Work Pump, Repe- Work Pump Repeat, which is just this incredible um it's a real how-to to breastfeed in public, breastfeed back at work. It's if you haven't picked that up yet, Judy, get yourself a copy of Work Pump Repeat, and and see if you can find her TED Talk. Awesome, awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We yeah. needed to go. Why we needed to go more viral. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's amazing. Yeah. Well, Judy, we have had a good conversation here, and I hate to let you go, but I think we have given our listeners a lot to think about today. So I want to say thank you very and, much. And let me just say that our, at our website, ourbodiesourselves.org, you will read so many blogs and so much material that really fills in the gaps. I've only been able to address a little bit about what your audience is interested in, but yeah. there's so much more at our website. It's all free. It's all accessible. And it's one of the few organizations that still doesn't take money from the pharmaceutical industry, so you know you can trust the source. You're getting the straight information. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you again, Judy. We're going to say goodbye, and we'll talk again soon. Okay. Take care. So long. Mama said there'll be days like this. There'll be days like this. Mama said. Mama said. My guest today was Judy Norsigian. You can learn more about Judy's work at ourbodiesourselves.org. Common Sense Pregnancy and Parenting Podcast is produced by Alex Ward at Sounds Like Pictures Studios in Portland, Oregon. You can learn more about my work at genefaulkner.com. Pick up my book, Common Sense Pregnancy, at amazon.com, Barnes & Noble, or wherever books are sold. If you have questions, email me, gene at genefaulkner.com. Please subscribe to the podcast, share it with your friends, post it on your social media platforms, and help me keep this conversation going. Thanks, everybody. We'll talk again next week. Days like this, there'll be days.